I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. We are going to start with the third night, Nox Tertia. This week, the California fires have our hearts and minds. Some of you, I know, are right in the midst of it. And so really, we're holding you with as much love as we possibly can and sending you all love who might be around in that area. And if you're feeling as though you might be going mad in the midst of all this, you've come to the right place because we are going to dive in to madness today. We are we're in, in the madhouse house today. Yeah, we're in the map. diagnosed. <laughs> so, and there was a little section, uh, I meant to look it up, but last week in which Jung enters the madhouse and is diagnosed for the first time. And yeah, this was on page 337 last week. You're obviously headed to the madhouse and, and the professor slash doctor sort of jokes, the man has wit. He is obviously somewhat maniacally aroused. Do you hear voices? And Jung says, you bet. Today, it was a huge throng of Anabaptists that swarmed through the kitchen. So that, that was where we were last week. And this week, we're starting off with Jung navigating being in the madhouse. And so I just want to speak a little bit to the history of that. Jung started his medical career as a psychiatrist, right? So this was a choice that he made somewhat against intelligent thinking at the time. Jung, Jung took the direction of psychiatry in medical school and, and as he you know, needed to choose a discipline. And psychiatry was very looked down upon and very, very new. And it was not what it is now, which is it wasn't about medicine. It really was about the study of soul in much the same way that psychotherapy is or whatnot now. So right, this is the beginning of psychoanalysis and, and talk therapy with Jung and Freud. So he decided to go in this direction and he began working at the preeminent um, psychiatric hospital at the time in Zurich. And his work was with schizophrenic patients. So he had a very deep and I think increasingly sympathetic experience of what it was to go crazy and to, to feel mad. And that really comes through in this section in a very beautiful way. It's sometimes, I mean, I think it took me initially a few readings of this chapter to kind of fully understand what was going on because it jumps around in imagery and, and you'll see the characters transform. So one character I want to just point out a little bit is I think there's some suggestion, at least for me, that the portly cook, the female cook from last week turns into the fat little professor, turns into the doctor who is then at some point in this chapter referred to as the devil. So then you have the devil and the feminine again relating to each other, but there's this transforming image throughout this chapter that we'll track a little bit. Carol, do you want to start with the reading? I'll start. So we're on page 347, 
of the readers, um, and it's Nox Tertia. My soul spoke to me in a whisper, urgently and alarmingly. Words, words, do not make too many words. Be silent and listen. Have you recognized your madness and do you admit it? Have you noticed that all your foundations are completely mired in madness? Do you not want to recognize your madness and welcome it in a friendly manner? You wanted to accept everything. So accept madness too. Let the light of your madness shine and it will suddenly dawn on you. Madness is not to be despised and not to be feared, but instead you should give it life. Jung says, your words sound hard and the task you set me is difficult. His soul. If you want to find paths, you should also not spurn madness since it makes up such a great part of your nature. I didn't know that this is so. Be glad that you can recognize it for you will thus avoid becoming its victim. Madness is a special form of the spirit and clings to all teachings and philosophies, but even more to daily life. Since life itself is full of craziness and at bottom, utterly illogical. I love that phrase. Life itself is full of craziness and at bottom, utterly illogical. This is, this is the, the sort of the, the whole world as it is, not, not the world making that, we, that he's been talking about. Man strives toward reason only so that he can make rules for himself. Life itself has no rules. That is its mystery and its unknown law. What you call knowledge is an attempt to impose something comprehensible on life. Jung says, that all sounds very desolate, but nevertheless, it prompts me to disagree. And his soul says, you have nothing to disagree with. You're in the madhouse. And there stands the fat little professor. Had he spoken this way? And had I taken him for my soul? The professor says, yes, my dear, you are confused. Your speech is completely incoherent. Jung says, I too believe that I've completely lost myself. Am I really crazy? It's all terribly confusing. The professor says, have patience. Everything will work out. Anyway, sleep well. Jung says, thank you, but I'm afraid. <laughs> Do you want to take it from there? Sure. Yeah. Everything inside me is in utter disarray. Matters are becoming serious and chaos is approaching. Is this the ultimate bottom? Is chaos also a foundation? If only there weren't these terrible waves, everything breaks asunder like black billows. Yes, I see and understand. It is the ocean, the almighty nocturnal tide. A ship moves there, a large steamer. I'm just about to enter the smoking parlor. Many people, beautiful clothes, they all look at me astonished. Someone comes up to me and says, what's the matter? You look just like a ghost. What happened? Nothing. That is, I believe that I have gone crazy. The floor sways. Everything moves. Someone says, the sea is somewhat rough this evening. That's all. Have a hot toddy. You're seasick. You're right. I, I am seasick, but in a special way. I'm really in a madhouse. Someone says, well, now you're joking again. Life is returning. And Jung says, do you call that wit? Just now the professor pronounced me truly and utterly mad. 
the fat little professor is actually sitting at a green covered table playing cards. He turns towards me when he hears me speak and laughs. Well, where did you get to? Come here. Would you like a drink too? You're quite a character, I must say. You've put all the ladies in quite a flurry this evening. Jung says, Professor, for me, this is no longer a joke. Just now I was your patient. The parlor erupts in unbridled laughter. The professor says, I hope that I haven't upset you too much. Jung says, well, to be committed is no small matter. The person to whom I had been speaking before suddenly comes up to me and looks me in the face. He is a man with a black beard, a tousled head of hair, and, a, and dark shining eyes. He speaks to me vehemently. Something worse happened to me. It's five years now that I've been here. I realize that it is my neighbor who has apparently awakened from his apathy and is now sitting on my bed. He goes on speaking fiercely and urgently. But I am Nietzsche, only rebaptized. I am also Christ, the Savior, and appointed to save the world, but they won't let me. Who won't let you? The fool says, the devil, we are in hell. But of course, you haven't noticed it yet. I didn't realize until the second year of my time here that the director is the devil. Jung says, you mean the professor? That sounds incredible. The fool says, you're an ignoramus. I was supposed to marry the mother of God long ago, but the professor, that devil, has her in his power. Every evening when the sun goes down, he gets her with child. In the morning before sunrise, she gives birth to it. Then all the devils come together and kill the child in a gruesome manner. I distinctly hear his cries. Jung says, but what you have told me is pure mythology. I want to pause here. I want, uh, this is the image from the Red Brook. You know, so what we have here is a, a dying figure on a, on a sort of a mosaic field. The figure is in black and red and his heart is being pierced by a rave. Carol, do you, do you actually see the other figure in there holding the ray? This figure here, the angel? Yeah, to me, I mean, I think I stared at this image quite a number of times before I really, that, that other element of it stood out from the, from the background. Mm. And the eye and the bird, there's quite a number of figures that are kind of... Well, so here's the bird up here that. for those yeah. of you who, who can't see. And of course, this figure is standing on a snake, mm -hmm. which in the, the serpent will feature really prominently. I, I was so struck by this image. And I really appreciated you starting this morning, Satya, talking about Jung's experience of working with schizophrenic patients. And it helps me understand the depth of the madness that he feels when he's in this process and his compassion for people with whom he's working, his understanding of their process. And, um, and I was so moved by this figure, the fool that says, every evening the, the mother of God is conceived and every day she delivers the child and every day the child is killed. The speaking of, of being in a constant, constant process of, of aliveness and loss. So I, I was very struck by that. But the other thing that I was really struck by is after, after he says, I distinctly hear his cries and Jung says, but what you have told me is pure mythology. I think about Jung later coming back to that and being able to reflect and talk about this experience, to go all the way there and then come back and be able to reflect, reflect, name it, and make an image about it. It also speaks directly to his experience with revelation while working with schizophrenic patients. There's, 
right below that, there is another image that I'll just say briefly, Jung had this kind of revelatory experience when he was working with schizophrenic patients and hearing them speak of pure mythology, but knowing that these are people from the countryside or whatever, that their backgrounds, there's no way that they could have had the mythological training that would have consciously given them these images to then speak. So this is the basis of his coming to understand the collective unconscious, that we are like mushroom tops tapped into the mycological layer, the rhizome layer under the soil, all experiencing something in that space of madness or in that space of chaos that we can then speak something mythological that we have no lifetime experience or knowledge of, right? Yeah. So, so I think for me, that line too is really, it's a reminder of, of Jung's own revelation of, of what the collective unconscious is. And he's now in it. And the yeah. ocean and the waves are his diving into that collective unconscious space. Well, and, the, and the, so let's finish this section, the queasiness that it produces. Uh-huh. You know, he, he says, um, uh, what you have told me is pure mythology. The fool says, you're crazy and understand nothing of it. You belong in the madhouse. My God, why does my family always shut me in with crazy people? I'm supposed to save the world. I'm the savior. He lies down again and sinks back into his lassitude. I clutch the sides of my bed to protect myself against the terrible waves. I stare at the wall so that I can at least latch onto something with my eyes. A horizontal line runs along the wall, which is painted a darker color beneath. A radiator stands in front of it. It is a railing, and I can see the sea beyond it. The line is the horizon. And there the sun now rises in red glory, solitary and magnificent. In it is a cross from which a serpent hangs, or is it a bull slit open as at the slaughterhouse, or is it an ass? I suppose it's really a ram with a crown of thorns, or is it the crucified one, myself, the son of martyrdom has arisen and is pouring bloody rays over the sea. This spectacle lasts a long time. The sun rises higher, its rays grow brighter and hotter, and the sun burns down white on a blue sea. The swell has subsided. A charitable and quiet summer dawn lies on the shimmering sea. The salty smell of water rises up. A faint, wide surf breaks on the sand with a dull thunder and returns incessantly 12 times the strokes of the world clock. The 12th hour is complete, and now silence enters. No noise, no breeze. Everything is rigid and deathly still. I wait, secretly anxious. I see a tree arise from the sea. Its crown reaches to heaven and its roots reach down into hell. I am completely alone and disheartened and gaze from afar. It is as if all life had flown from me and completely passed into the incomprehensible and fearful. I am utterly weak and incapable. Salvation, I whisper. A strange voice speaks. There is no salvation here. You must remain calm or you will disturb the others. It is night and the other people want to sleep. I see it's the attendant. The room is dimly lit by a weak lamp and sadness weighs on the room. I say, 
I couldn't find the way. He says, you don't need to find a way now. He speaks the truth. The way or whatever it might be on which people go is our way, the right way. There are no paved ways into the future. We say that it is this way, and it is. We build roads by going on. Our life is the truth that we seek. Only my life is the truth, the truth above all. We create the truth by living it. I love what he says next. This is the night in which all the dams broke. This section, that I would love even to read that section again just briefly, Carol. For me, it is just the core of this and, and incredibly moving. Just briefly, I think the introduction of the attendant there is part of this. It's the difference, again, between empathy and intellectualism. So it's not the professor that is so kind to him in this moment. Yeah. You know, I think of this as more of a nurse character, right? Yeah. And and Jung knows this experience from working in in a mental hospital, from, you know, working with very sick people. And here is just a person attending him at night and says, you don't need to find the way now. I mean, yeah. he's, there's such a tenderness to that, I feel. Yeah. Jung says, I couldn't find the way. I couldn't find the way. I mean, there's something like, it just makes me feel teary to feel that fear and that tenderness. And I just, that, I have to read that paragraph again because it sings out to me so deeply. Yeah, please. He, he speaks the truth, Jung says. The way or whatever it might be on which people go is our way, the right way. There are no paved ways into the future. We say that it is this way, and it is. We build roads by going on. Our life is the truth that we seek. Only my life is the truth, the truth above all. We create the truth by living it. If there isn't a core of what world making is within Jung's psychology, you know, that is the core. So thanks for letting me just hover there mm. for a moment. Mm. This whole chapter, especially the, the, the queasiness, the uncertainty, the instability, the movement, the constant movement, the watery quality of the constant movement, um, sent me back to the astrology of the moment. You know, this is happening on January 18th and uh, January 19th of 1914. And again, I'm always thinking about that time and our time, the time that we're in now. And so I was very struck by, um, by Neptune. Uh, all of astrology's language about Neptune, which is this symbol here, the trident, you know, his name was Poseidon in, in Greek. Every world, every world making has an oceanic deity. One of my favorite from the Irish is uh, Lair. And um, this is one of my favorite images when I was in Ireland last year. This is his boat to navigate the waters. Just this idea of Jung is on a ship. It's a madhouse. It's on an ocean. He's sailing on the oceanic. And that this is a part of the grand cross that he's going through. It challenges everything that he thinks he knows. It, and not only does it challenge everything that Jung personally thinks he knows, but think about the entire world that he's living in on the eve of World War I. You know, the Battle of the Marne is being fought the unspeakable horrors of World War I, the, the first chemical warfare, 
the world coming together in war, not in harmony and peace, that everything's coming apart, that not only is it coming apart personally for Jung, but it's really coming apart for the world. And Jung's incredible sensitivity to it is, is this image that he produces. Is there a way? There is no way. The only way is to be very clear about in yourself and to be present. And everything that it leads to about being suspended between two worlds, between the world of consciousness and the world of the unconscious, between the world of righteousness and the world of, of error. And with all of this sea going on, it made me think about in astrology, Neptune, and it made me think in particular about this particular image from the tarot, which is a suspension between worlds. And I think about the world mythologies in which a god has to give up his world in order to know the whole world, that you have to suspend yourself between the worlds. And um, and especially when Jung talks about the tree growing out of the ocean, that's what sent me to the tarot deck, this idea that out of the, not just the thing, the ocean, but out of the oceanic rises this tree from which he's going to suspend himself so that he has a chance to live his life, a life, not just the world, the way it's been made and, and madness, that there's something in between all of that. Let me read on that point, Carol, at the end of 356 and the mm -hmm. beginning of 357. Yes. If I accept the lowest in me, I lower a seed into the ground of hell. The seed is invisibly small, but the tree of my life grows from it and conjoins the below with the above. At both ends, there is fire and blazing embers. The above is fiery and the below is fiery. Between the unbearable fires grows your life. You hang between these two poles. It is immeasurably frightening movement. In an immeasurably frightening movement, the stretched hanging welters up and down. We thus fear our lowest, since that which one does not possess is forever united with the chaos and takes part in its mysterious ebb and flow. Insofar as I accept the lowest in me, precisely that red glowing sun of the depths, and thus fall victim to the confusion of chaos, the upper shining sun also rises. Therefore, he who strives for the highest finds the deepest. Yeah, and at, at, at the bottom, I think the paragraph at the bottom, the dead of the above and the below mounted and their demands grew louder. I mean, he, in Noxacunda, he is talking about living your animal and that being in your animal body and being out of the made human world, which brings you into instinct and madness, also brings you into formlessness. And formlessness brings you into ancestry. It brings you into a chain of being that, that is how, how it is that you got here. And this idea of being suspended between two things, you know, when he says at the bottom of page 357, he who goes into the one and not also at the same time into the other by accepting what comes toward him, but that is in the animal body, but also in the ancestry from, from the beloved dead, will simply teach and live the one and turn it into a reality and he will be its victim. 
When you go into the one and hence consider the other approaching you as your enemy, you will fight against the other. I think about that line in the Wilhelm Bain's translation of the I Ching, injury thinks of offense. You know, this uh, this idea of retreating to rigidified positions, of rigidified polarity positions. Um, you will do so because you fail to recognize that the other is also in you. I don't know that the blue lives matter and the black lives matter. I don't think we're there. I think about the times in my life when I've lost it. You know, when there's nice, safe, comfortable parameters of this means this and this means this. I, I've said this here before, but I remember saying fairly early on in my study of astrology to a very dear friend, I said, why do you, why do you think I was, I'm so drawn to astrology? She just laughed. She said, fear of chaos. <laughs> and it made me laugh out loud, but it also, it, it, I think about, about what happens when you let go of the frame through which you understand everything, which is a hermetic mercurial process in a way. But that sanity comes from it, that, that, and which is like sanity in the sense of consensual reality, you know, that you frame things in a way that holds you in relationship to what everybody else says it, it is agreeable. And what he is doing here is he's surrendering him. Yeah. He's surrendering that. Mm -hmm. And he's surrendering at a time when, consensual reality is really coming apart at the seams on the eve of a, of a world war. So, you know. It makes me think too, the image of the ship on the sea is, is specific, right? It's a dream image that is distinct from like a little rowboat. It's distinct from a car. It's distinct from an airplane. You know, there's a variety of images in our dream worlds that are vehicles of transport. And I think there's a, there's a very common dream experience that people can have where they're they're about to miss a flight that comes up all the time in dream work i'm about to miss a flight or something and, and i think that very often speaks to an experience of one's own journey and and trying to sort of find the timing and the and the experience of one's own journey and are they late right trying to find your path there's the there's the image of a car and this quality of our turtle shells personally as we navigate the world um, and for me, a very common experience of sort of how our ego structure or how our body structure is holding us in the world and who's driving, you know, but the ship image, which comes up here, for me speaks to more of this quality of the social construct, just as you put it, Carol, it's a foundation that's floating on the collective unconscious or on the water, but that everyone can move around kind of not aware that they're on a massive ship right? They can have, they can play cards as it's happening in this. They can drink and be merry and, and this whole experience of socializing, everyone's wandering around, but underneath them is the ocean. So it, it mirrors a little bit being on earth alone, but it mirrors, I think, being in this kind of shared psychology as you just expressed it and shared values. And what Jung is wrestling with here is that that all that foundation is starting to crumble yeah. you know he he it's not just his own ego structure that's crumbling it's his capacity to relate to everything he was raised with and the the ship of christianity or in my mind the ship of patriarchy and the way that good and evil is identified the way that good is male and evil is female in so mm -hmm. many ways that underpin christianity 
all of that is being wrestled with. And he's in this chapter, his soul is saying, if you want to find your way, you got to accept chaos, which is also to say you got to accept evil, which is also to say you have to accept the female, the feminine. And this is the whole book he's sorting through. How do I accept these things? Yeah. Well, one of the loveliest definitions in the astrological language for Neptune, the, the mythological archetype Neptune, came from a, a lovely 1950s composer who was attracted to astrology, Dane Rudyard. And he says, Neptune is the alchemical solvent in which all ego dissolves. Mm. So all of us have in us the ocean. We have the ocean in us. We came from it yeah. and we'll go back to it. And that idea of, of self-surrender, the, the, the tarot card of, of the suspension, of the willing suspension of the ego into an, the, the alchemical idea of the place of always becoming, always becoming, always becoming, is also from a consensual reality viewpoint madness you know that there's that that there are structures that keep you separate and keep you distinct and give you memory and give you a path but it isn't the only thing that's true about you and when i think about jung's horoscope and that in fact how how he's locating this in himself the timing and the emphasis of coming to the dissolution of the ego so that he can really swim in the oceanic, but also all of the fears and the doubts that it, and, and the terror that it brings up. He says, I'm afraid. Yeah. And, you know, we all feel that way when we get to this point. Yeah, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's read the last paragraphs, and then, and then we'll check in with okay. Anne for her thoughts on right. Nietzsche. Do you want to read or shall I? Yeah, here, I'll read from uh, Return to Primal Chaos. If you, this is on page 360, if you return to primal chaos, the oceanic, every, you know, every world mythology has primordial chaos out of which form arises, and Neptune is as good as any, you know, image to make around how something comes out of formlessness into form. If you return to primal chaos, and if you feel and recognize that which hangs stretched between the two unbearable poles of fire, you will notice that you can no longer separate good and evil conclusively, neither through feeling nor through knowledge, but that you can discern the direction of growth only from below to above. You thus forget the distinction between good and evil, and you no longer know it as long as your tree grows from below to above. But as soon as growth stops, what was united in growth falls apart, and once more you recognize good and evil. You can never deny your knowledge of good and evil to yourself so that you could betray your good in order to live evil. For as soon as you separate good and evil, you recognize them. They are united only in growth. But you grow if you stand still in the greatest doubt, and therefore steadfastness in great doubt is a veritable flower of life. He who cannot bear doubt does not bear himself. Such a one is doubtful. He does not grow, and hence he does not live. Doubt is the sign of the strongest and the weakest. The strong have doubt, but doubt has the weak. Therefore, the weakest is closest to the strongest. And if he can say to his doubt, I have you, 
then he is the strongest. But no one can say yes to his doubt unless he endures wide open chaos. Because there are so many among us who can talk about anything, pay heed to what they live. What someone says can be very much or very little. Thus, examine his life. My speech is neither light nor dark, since it is the speech of someone who is growing. Woof! Yeah. That, that last section, the strong have doubt, but the doubt has the weak. Therefore, the yeah. weakest is close to the strongest. And if he can say this, what this next line for me is, it's using the ego consciousness to be able to do the fishing of the unconscious, right? It's very mm -hmm. different than a lot of Buddhist philosophy of kind of shrinking the ego or relativizing mm -hmm. the ego. He's saying, okay. use the ego. You know, if if he can say to his doubt, if he can hover above his doubt and say, I have you, he can then use his consciousness to develop and engage with these uncomfortable experiences. And then he's strongest. Yeah. I, it reminds me of reading number 10 in the I Ching, which is, which is imaged as treading on the tail of the tiger. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that you're very, very close to something very, very dangerous. And in fact, this language where he talks about um, the weakest is close to the strongest is actually Wilhelm Baines's translation in, mm. uh, in, in I Ching reading number 10. Mm. That idea of being able to be, to stay in yourself, but be that close to complete yeah. surrender. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's a really important point, Satya. And do you want to, you want to kick us off with our kind of continued well, conversation, but around Nietzsche, what are your thoughts? I just want to say so much of this sounds like Nietzsche, that it's really incredible. And I mean, he even has Nietzsche in there in the madhouse. And of course, as you know, Nietzsche did end up in the madhouse, but he was a very, very powerful prophetic voice at that moment in time. Nobody, no one that I know of didn't wrestle with him. And that paragraph you just read about the strong of doubt, but doubt is the weak, that could be right straight out of Zarathustra. So I'm going to take just a slightly different tact. I couldn't send it to you because I was blocked out of my computer. I hope I end up, my admiration for Jung is beyond bounds. So I hope I end up right there. I'm going to tackle it from a slightly different angle, though. And that together with Nietzsche. The, pa the uh, paragraph that says he sees the tree of life whose root roots reach into hell and whose top touches heaven. He sees that the tree of life grows from below to above. We've, we've, you've read that several times. And that it has its crown at the top clearly differentiated from its roots. To him, this is unquestionable. I want really to underline that. Hence, he knows the way to salvation. Now, I'm going to read a part of the same line from Nietzsche, because I hear Nietzsche coming here again and again. Here's Nietzsche, Zarathustra. The same with man as with the tree. The more he seeketh to rise into the height and light, the more vigorously do his roots struggle earthward, downward, into the dark and deep, into the evil. So salvation is still above and evil is below, which of course is a sure prescription for madness. But anyway, um, 
I mean, so many of these thoughts are wrestling with Nietzsche. And Jung is aware that the root and his words are suckled the dark nourishment of the depths. Mm. So he's taking it to that insight. But salvation still lies unquestionably in the direction of the above. And I see in that a metaphoric blindness, patriarchal blindness, that haunts Western civilization. In other words, above the branches are heaven, light, salvation. And below in the roots is hell, the dark, damnation, and the death. And if you, I I just very quickly took a couple of sentences from Sharon Blackie's contemporary, If if Women Rose Rooted, the black, wet heart, the wetness of the earth. To love a bog is to love what lies beneath, buried in the rich black butter. This is a wonderful sentence. Will you go willingly and sink into the welcoming dark? Which is, of course, much closer to indigenous thinking where the dark is, that's when the spirits speak. That's when you, why you want the darkness. For me, one of the obstacles that Jung is grappling with as he grapples wonderfully in this chapter with Nietzsche is, his, is the hold that Christianity still has on his soul. Yeah. Not the church, that's been obliterated way back in adolescence, but I mean is the cultural narrative of Western civilization, which he saw in some way holding together the well-being, the meaningfulness of that cultural growth, and that has now sickened. And right there, you're with Nietzsche again and again. God is dead. And so he's both echoing Nietzsche and continually struggling with him. He's mad. I mean, he even says of Nietzsche, he's mad. That's much too far out. But then he comes again and they will see things similarly, or he talks in a Nietzschean voice. And the problem with Christianity as a cultural narrative, I'm saying, is God the Father. Is there a problem? No, no. I was just going to speak for a moment, just really marveling at what you're speaking to that I had not understood. And I think... I'd not understood that when Jung says, thus examine his life, he may be speaking directly to Nietzsche. Is that right? Is that part of your read? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think throughout this he's speaking. I mean, like the fool is Nietzsche. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't put that together. I think it's profound. He's, you know, he's saying if we're going to take this person's philosophy, recognize he right. ended up in the madhouse. So let's, re- yeah. let's revise and understand. Of course, that's what it is. That's profound. Yeah. And what is madness? Yeah. What is oh, yeah. it's deeply, deeply and powerfully as all of Western culture, all of Western thought at that moment had to wrestle with this madman called Nietzsche, who even sounds mad, but was incredibly prophetic. He saw, I mean, I, I won't go into all the prophetic things that he saw. We'll just stay with this one here. But they're both seeing, but you can see unquestionably that the tree go, grows from below to above. That's only if you look with eyes that are only seeing the earth. You're not seeing what's actually growing below. And so if you keep God as Father in place, which Christianity will do, you're dealing, let's deal with it just at the archetypal level, that its numinosity will be the above, the transcendent, 
the sky, the ascent upwards, growing like the tree, the light, and that will become identified with the good, heaven. And the, uh, where's the archetype of the sacred feminine, of God as mother, however you want to call it, gives the numinous experience of the below, the descent, the deep, dark womb or tomb of the universe. I'm, I'm looking at my own notes. The roots and not the branches. But that, of course, in, in, in both the Nietzsche and Jungian analogy here, that's where the evil is, is down in the roots. You've got to go into them, but it's still the roots. And, and I sort of juxtapose that with the way that Sharon Blackie talked about it. But one of my greatest, my most favorite phrases is the one when Inyana is going to descend into the underworld. It's like she's saying what we, where we are today. And she turned, she turned her, her ear from the great above to the great below. Mm-hmm. And that says it all in one sentence, but I'm going to say just a few more things because Today, if you look at it through the lens of we as women rising rooted, we as women as men, I don't mean to exclude men here at all, we rising rooted see that the branches are literally echoing, literally echoing the form of the roots. It's not like it's growing one way. It's what we were talking about the very beginning. We're looking at a new ethos, which is the reciprocity of relationship, that where you end up when you have all these conversations is at a much deeper place so that the growth as we look at it today is from above to below, but it's also from below to above. It's a DNA, it's a, Qigong would have the movements for that where it's above to below and below to above. And at the same time, the wholeness that spiraling is an expansion. The girth is widening its rings. So I just wanted to say that I think the place where Jung gets hooked here sometimes is that he can't quite let go of Christianity as a cultural narrative and that he would love to heal it. He's left the church, but he'd love to heal it. That's Mari Stein's rule. And he'd like to do that by making the Trinity now become a quaternity so that the quaternity now has good and evil and masculine and feminine. But the problem with that is you have not deconstructed God as Father. You've got the Trinity being the quaternity, but you, you don't have up at the very source or down at the very source that matriarchal symbolism that we looked at yesterday. What I think Jung did, he built a bridge across which Western civilization could cross. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely phenomenal. If he'd only come up with two or three of his insights, that would have been more than enough. But I think sometimes he got two thirds of the way across and we're gonna be looking more at that. And he just couldn't quite make that last step. And it was as if he passed the baton two thirds of the way across the bridge to Eric Neumann. And he said to his kind of, son, psycho-spiritual son, you, I'm going to hand you the baton of the great mother. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to just read, just if I may, one line here, and then that's the end, but I think it really pertains to everything we're going to look at. This is from Jung's foreword 
to the history and origins of consciousness of Neumanns. And this is so humble and so wonderful. Jung speaking, as I read through the manuscript of this book, The Origins and History of Consciousness, it became clear to me how great are the disadvantages of pioneer work. One stumbles through unknown regions. One is led astray by analogies, forever losing the Ariadne thread. One is overwhelmed by new impressions and new possibilities. And the worst disadvantage of all is that the pioneer only knows afterwards what he should have known before. Mm -hmm. The second generation has the advantage of a clearer, if still incomplete picture, certain landmarks that at least lie on the frontiers of the essential have grown familiar and one now knows what must be known if one is to explore the newly discovered territory. And the last sentence is about Neumann. He has woven his facts into a pattern and created a unified whole, which no pioneer, himself as a pioneer, could have done, nor could have ever attempted to do. This present work opens at the very place, the great mother, where I unwittingly made landfall on the new continent long ago, namely the realm of matriarchal symbolism. Mm. In other words, mm. where women rise rooted. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Anne, for all yeah, of that. Thank you. you. You said so much, I'll just say briefly, I, I've said this many times, right, but my own feeling of taking 80% of Jung's work and deeply digesting all of that and, and sort of rejecting 20%. So I hear you saying a very similar thing. But I also, even in the rejecting of the 20%, feel that Jung always left the space open to say, I am a pioneer and I don't know everything. And in the Red Book, even when we feel him getting stuck, we know he's getting stuck because he, he was raised in a family of pastors. He was raised with madness. He was raised with all this in such profound ways the courage that it took for him to get as far as he got is astounding to me. Mm -hmm. uh, but you also just spoke to the bridge between the above and below so eloquently. And I just want to just finish here with a tiny reading that's going to kick us off to next week, but we'll start here next week. We will still go to Q and a, we're going to have a shorter Q and a today, but at the very beginning of Knox Quarta on 361, his soul speaks again and says, and you remember he started at the right door and then went to the left door. And she now says the door should be lifted off its hinges to provide a free passage between here and there, between yes and no, between above and below, between left and right. It really, now we're getting to the corpus callosum. We're working through the connection of the left and right hemispheres and the whole damn thing, the androgen. So we'll start there next week. Thank you, Anne, for all that extraordinary wisdom. And I want to say that was done as a tribute to Jung and to the depth of his insight and to the depth of his willingness to struggle with Nietzsche, to struggle right. with those ideas and break out in a place that yeah. builds a bridge for all of us to still keep walking on. Yeah, yeah and I've, I've always known intellectually that the Red Book was some response to Thus Spake Zarathustra, but, but not knowing enough of what you just described, I now understand it so much more deeply. It's stunning. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Carol, you ready for some Q&A? Sure. Hi, Linda. So I have a couple of thoughts. Um, one is the, your whole idea of the ship on the ocean and not really being aware of, you can be on the ship and not be aware of that. 
And just thinking about, you know, the issues that came up right away with cruise ships and the COVID and all of that. And so there seems to be, you know, that's like such a vivid image that is so true and really was part of the problem that we face now. So there's that. And then I was just thinking now with Anana and the roots and, you know, and in the beginning of Anana's story, when she's a young girl, you know, Anana finds the tree as a young girl in the raging waters and she plants it and cultivates it. And then she wants her throne built out of that tree. And Gilgamesh has to, for her, chase Lilith out of the roots where of the tree, where Lilith has taken up residency. And then Anana, as an adult, goes back into the earth and meets Ereshkigal. So she puts her, she puts her ear to the earth and goes back into those roots and down there. And it, it's just kind of that connection. You know, I had never really thought about it that way of like sort of kicking out the darkness of the feminine, the wildness of the feminine, and that being sent away and then actually going back to retrieve that. And she doesn't reach her full capacity as an archetypal energy until she goes back and retrieves. And that whole idea of Ereshkigal giving birth in the underworld, all of those, I, they're just, reading this has kind of enriched that image. So I just, those were my thoughts. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. It enriches my reading, too, to hear all of that and remember those connections. It's phenomenal. I, I th thank you, Linda. I, that, that whole story and, and Anne's, uh, the connection and the reciprocity between the crown and the root, you know, in the horoscope, the midheaven is the crown and the IC is the root of, of the human connecting heaven and earth. And that whole idea, not just the Christian idea of transcendence, but but the human struggle with incarnation and the body that of living in matter and the Christian idea of being redeemed or saved from matter, which is so distinctly different than immersion and, and um, a, a, the blessing of the matter. And um, you just hit in all of these stories, that central idea, how will we be in our bodies? How, how will we come to terms with the reality of our death? And how, how will we not die? The, the, the whole idea of, of here's a solution, we'll live forever, you know, and all of the structures that come out of that. Anyway, it's nice to be, I, I love the Inanna story and I love the Lilith story, so thank you. Mm -hmm. Hi, Dan. Hi. So I uh, have a kind of synchronicity with what we're talking about today. My grandma's done a lot of depth work and my grandpa was a psychotherapist. So she just recently I've gotten more, you know, into it. She sent me a few pages from Ego and Archetype by Edinger. Mm. And um, one of the best. Yeah, I need to read it now that I've read these and now contextualizing it with what you guys are saying. Mm -hmm. Uh, this paragraph says, man needs a world of symbols as well as a world of signs. This is from page 109 at the bottom. Both sign and symbol are necessary, but they should not be confused with one another. A sign is a token of meaning that stands for a known entity. 
By this definition, language is a system of signs, not symbols. A symbol, on the other hand, is an image or representation which points to something essentially unknown, a mystery. A sign communicates abstract, objective meaning, whereas a symbol conveys living, subjective meaning. A symbol has a subjective dynamicism, which exerts a powerful attraction and fascination on the individual. It is a living, organic entity, which acts as a releaser and transformer of psychic energy. We can thus say, a sign is dead, but a symbol is alive. Mm, thank, thanks for that. <laughs> Love You're it. You're welcome. Edinger, um, you might get your paws into anatomy of psyche more readily. It's more image-based, I think, even in, in less conceptual in a way. His lectures are also stunning. And I think Edinger can get twisted around sometimes because he's such a profound thinker. So just putting that out there, I think your grandma is on the right track. Please let her know we are here and would love to talk to her if she wants to join us in her, her own journey. Love hearing of the grandmas who are into depth work. Um, great, yeah. Thank you, Dan. That's phenomenal. Edinger is one of the yeah, great. thank you. I'll, listen, I'll take your advice on that. <laughs> yeah, Anatomy of Psyche is a, is a deep dive into alchemy in a really more accessible way than, um, than uh, a lot of Jung's work was mm. in regards to alchemy. So Edinger does an extraordinary job of opening that up in Anatomy of Psyche. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Hi, Andrew. You ready? All righty. Uh, I just wanted to say, Anne, you'll know about this more than I do, but um, I was listening to Robert Johnson speak about how Jung felt that Nietzsche's fundamental error was represented in the fact that in one of his dream visions, he refused to eat a frog that was interpreted as the earthiness that he was offered by, by one of his visionary characters. And that William Blake for him was someone who was grounded enough to what he did and survive and, and integrated in, in a way in which he felt that Nietzsche was not able to. So I thought that was interesting. That's one of the great conflicts in Nietzsche is that you will get him saying you've got to go down below and you've got to go down into those depths and it's beyond good and evil and yet at the same time it's really almost painful sometimes what he calls going above. He has this thing about nobility and aristocracy and strength and courage and definitely not eating frogs and, and <laughs> you, you have this built-in confusion that Western civilization itself is going through at that moment that Jung had to wrestle with. He had to take it another step further. He had to say, no, that means eating the frog. Nietzsche and, and never eating the liver, Eating the liver of the mutilated yeah, girl. Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. We've jumped worlds there, but you only get there step by step. So, yes, good observation. So illuminating, y'all. Thank yeah. you. Um, hi, Steve. Hi there. I just wanted to note that, um, and I, 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 as I've mentioned, um, I, I've been kind of amazed at how much imagery that, that at least I'm perceiving in here from the Kabbalah. This whole chapter, to me, seems to relate to this idea of 
the crossing of the abyss. So all of this material about kind of the breakdown of reality, the the words losing their meaning, it, it all relates to this idea of the dark night of the soul that that, that is associated with that. You know, the, the Kabbalah, alchemy, it's all part of this kind of esoteric tradition, these ideas that were kind of rejected by mainstream Christianity. And so I, I, one, one of the things that's really interesting is that second path is one of the paths up to the crown, up to the top of the tree of life, which is another image that comes up in here again and again. But the image of, of the crown is often described as being the profile of God the Father. And in at least some versions of, of the understanding of that, that's because if you were to get up there and to look that in the face, you would see that the other half of that profile is the bride, the bride of God, which is, which is Malkuth, the kingdom, the created earth, which is at the bottom of the tree. So there's this idea that, that in some way that, that the crown and the roots of the tree are the same thing. They're, they're whole. They're, they're yeah. two halves of the same. Right. And if you, if you were to know the might of God, you would see how this, you know, this imperfect and corrupted reality, you know, of Christian myth is actually the perfect mind of, of God. And, and that's, that's something that's kind of like, um, you know, in, imperfectly hinted at in, in a lot of these you know, chemical and Kabbalistic traditions. There's, there's the, you know, uh, uh, the hermaphrodite of alchemy, but it's, there, you know, there's this idea that the, there's, the tree has these two pillars, which are masculine and feminine. But there's, there's a lot in this tradition that is about trying to restore this balance between the masculine and feminine, even in the you know, chemical mantra of the, the Emerald Tablet, as above, so below, and as below, so above, that these two things affect each other. The, 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 the sun is its father, the, the moon is its mother. There's that, you know, that, that a perfect understanding, you see the balance of all these things. Yeah. Anyway, I just, Thank you, it was really struck uh, by that, a lot of that in this chapter. Yeah. Carol, you want to just say, you opened up so much there, Steve, and I, I wonder, Carol, you want to just respond a little bit before we end? Any thoughts that come through? Well, it, it might be a good, a good place to begin next time, but, uh, you know, the, the, this idea the, of a, a personal relationship with the divine versus a structured or institutional relationship with the divine and, um, and how we under, each of us undertakes uh, our journey in relationship to being separate and distinct and being one and whole, the the Kabbalah is a really wonderful language for that. And I, I it's lovely to be reminded of it as a tree, you know, of of these infinitely expanding, reflecting, exquisite planes that are constantly meeting and exchanging each other. And uh, it's it's nice to th- say thanks, Steve. It's nice to be reminded of that. Mm-hmm. Stunning. You're all brilliant. I love this so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank Thank you you. all so much. See you next week. For more, please visit salameinstitute.com. And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. To Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes. To Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music. And to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.